Heavenly Father, thank you for this new year that you've brought us into. Lord, we ask that this year be filled with blessings and not curses. But if the curses come, Lord, we ask that you give us the strength to withstand them. We ask a blessing upon this church, upon everyone here, everyone watching. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy New Year. Christmas is over. Thank goodness Christmas is over. Those of you who know me know I'm not a holiday person, but I'm happy for a new year. On April the 20th, 1913, Sir William Osler delivered a speech at Yale University, and it was a simple message. I can give you the Cliff Notes version in four words. Live in daytight compartments. In other words, live for today. Now that's easier said than done. But if you can pull it off, if you can put that into practice, it's the solution to a thousand problems. See, the average person spends 46.9% of their time thinking about something other than what they're doing in that present moment. 50% of the time, we're distracted. We're depressed. We're thinking about the past. We're worried about the future. We're frustrated. We're overwhelmed by this, that, and the other. We are half present half of the time, which means we're only half alive. The only way to be fully alive, to be fully present, and the only way to be fully present is, you may have guessed it, to live in daytight compartments, to live for today. Now, this isn't just a good idea. It's actually a God idea. Give us this day our daily bread. Take up your cross daily. This is the day the Lord hath made. Rejoice in it and be glad in it. His mercies are new every morning. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't worry about tomorrow. You see, yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Our job is to win the day, win today. That, that's it. So here we are at the beginning of a new year. I have no idea what the goal you're going after this year. Now, most of us said, and most of us will, some of us will do New Year's resolutions and then they fail about a month from now. But I have no idea what goal you might have for yourself this year. What problem you're trying to solve. What habit you're trying to break or to start. But I do know the secret to the success of that. It's going to happen one day at a time. You have to win the day. Then you have to get up and do it all over again the next day. Two days in a row? That's called a winning streak. Also called sanctification. Here's what we're going to go over the next seven weeks. We're going to unpack seven habits that will help you stress less, 
and accomplish more. This is based on a book by Mark Batterson called Win the Day. So let me plant the seed for you this morning. A seed of faith right here as we start a new year. Almost anyone can accomplish almost anything if they work at it long enough, hard enough, and smart enough. Let me give you an example. When I played tennis when I was younger, I haven't played in a decade or so, but I, was, I played tennis enough that I actually played collegiate tennis. But I didn't have tennis lessons growing up. We were too poor for that. So my brother and I taught ourselves how to play tennis. And when we played tennis, I had a great forehand, but my backhand just stunk. So I would run around my backhand. Anytime my, so my brother would keep hitting it to that side because he knew I couldn't hit a backhand. So I'd try to run around it, which would take me way off the court so that even if I got it back, it was a wide open court, he could win almost every point. So I knew that if I ever wanted to be good at tennis, I had to learn how to hit a backhand. So I forced myself to hit backhand after backhand after backhand. I worked at it long enough hard enough, I learned, I watched video, read books on how to do it. I, I did it smart enough. So eventually, when I got to college, my backhand was actually better than my forehand. Almost anyone can accomplish almost anything. They work at it long enough, hard enough, and smart enough. You are capable of more than you can imagine. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. 75% of New Year's resolutions will fail within the first month. Why? Because we think of it in a year-long time frame. This year, I want to do X, Y, or Z. It's overwhelming. You feel like quitting before you even start. So here's the question. And we'll keep coming back to it again and again in this series. Pick a habit, any habit. Can you do it for one day? For one day, can you do that habit? So you have to take your life in life goals and in, in reverse engineer them into daily habits. And the good news is the only ceiling on your intimacy with God and the impact your life can have on this world is daily spiritual discipline. If you meet with God each and every day, he is going to show up, and he will also show off. See, in a minute, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, which is the only verse you're going to see on the, script, on the screen all day today. But before I get to there, I want to zoom out and kind of look at a 30,000-foot view. There are decades when nothing happens. Then there are weeks when decades happen. Lately, it seems like there are days when decades happen. You can't just flip the calendar and expect everything to change. It's 2022. Does that mean 2021's gone? No. We're still living with the same problems we had yesterday. But you can flip the script. 
It's the first of seven habits that Mark Batterson talks about in that book, Win the Day. And here's the big idea. If you want to change your life, you have to change your story. In the science of cybernetics, there are two kinds of change, first-order change and second-order change. First-order change is behavioral. It's doing something either more or less. If you're trying to lose weight, it's eating less and exercising more. That's a step in the right direction. That's a first-order change. It's behavioral. First-order changes can facilitate a quick fix, but second-order change passes the test of time. The second-order change is it's conceptual. It's mind over matter. And that's where the magic can happen. Everything is created twice. The first creation is mental. It's internal. The second is physical, external. The second creation is, is everything is, has a thought. And that includes me and you. You just don't bear God's image. You are his idea. You're his workmanship. You are a unique expression of God's imagination. To see yourself as anything less is to believe a lie. There never has been, there never will be anyone just like you. The significance of this is, is this. No one can worship God like you or for you. No one can serve God like you or for you. And we tend to think of habits as external exercises that increase proficiency, productivity. And there's nothing wrong with that. They, those ideas can pay dividends. But the biggest return on investment are the internal habits that, that no one hardly ever sees your internal monologue, the way you explain your experiences to yourself, the stories you tell yourself day in and day out. On average, 60,000 thoughts fire across our synapses every single day. 80% of those are negative. We have a problem. The problem is our thinking. And as the proverb says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Your thoughts have a psychological and a physiological effect on you. Your thoughts have the power to lower your blood pressure, to slow down your pulse, to boost your immunity, and also to do the exact opposite. The battle is won or lost in our minds. The stories you tell yourself are far more important than the situations you find yourself in. That's when and where and how we can flip that script. So with that as a backdrop, let's, I'm going to take a look at Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. But, but before I do, let me set the background. It's about Joseph. When Joseph was a teenager, he had a dream, a dream that his brothers would one day bow down 
to him. Now, the mistake Joseph makes is telling his brothers that dream. Never a good idea. And his brothers then do what brothers would do in that type of situation. They fake his death and sell him into slavery. Life goes from bad to worse for Joseph. He ends up in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. If anyone could have played the victim card, it's Joseph. But this isn't the story that Joseph is narrating to himself. Long story short, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. Pharaoh puts a signet ring on his finger and makes him second in command of the entire kingdom. Thirteen years after being sold into slavery, his brothers come knocking on the door, begging for food because of a famine. His brothers bow down before him, not knowing who he was. I can only imagine what Joseph must have thought, what he must have felt. If he was like us, it was probably, told you so. The vision he had at 17 years of age. The vis vision that went, seemed to go off the rails. The vision that took a wrong turn. The vision that seemed so far away is fulfilled in that moment. This is a day when decades happen. Chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph looks back on all the ups and downs, all the pain and suffering, all the twists and turns, but this is what he says. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. We need God to give us a chapter 50, verse 20 vision for our lives. Make it as simple as a three-step process. If you want to flip the script, you have to get three things in order. You have to know your name, you have to fix your focus, and you have to change your story. The first step, you have to know your name. More than a century ago, Charles Horton Cooley, the founder of the American Sociological Association, said this, I am not what I think I am, and I am not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. A little bit of a tongue twister there. But the, the idea is this. Cooley called it the looking glass self as and it's basing our sense of self on how we believe others see us. Our sense of self comes from a lot of different sources. Sometimes it's as simple as someone saying that you're good at something or bad at something. Either way, it's letting other people narrate your story. It's living your life according to their expectations. It's critical for us to take our cues from Scripture. The book of James likens the Bible to a mirror. 
This is where we discover who we are in the eyes of God. This is how we know our name. And this is how we can flip the script. Let's dive back into Joseph's story for a second. After playing a few mind games on his brother, I mean, who couldn't? I mean, it's only natural, which is completely justified. Joseph finally reveals his identity. And he says to them, I am Joseph. And we we read right past this as almost a throwaway verse. Not so fast. You see, when Pharaoh makes Joseph second in command in the entire kingdom, he doesn't just give him a signet ring. He gives him a new name, an Egyptian name. And it would have been easy for Joseph to forget who he was, what his name was. If you allow it, culture will will name you. It will tame you it'll label you it will define you it will chew you up and spit you out you have to know who you are you have to know whose you are you need to know your name you are blessed you're chosen You're blameless. You're adopted by the Heavenly Father. You are redeemed by Christ. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are stamped in the image of God. You are who God says you are. If you want to flip the script, the first step is you have to know your name. Second step is You have to fix your focus. See, our focus determines our reality. Philippians 4 says, If anything is right or good or pure or just or admirable, think about such things. Your focus will determine your reality. If you're looking for something to be grateful for, you'll find it you're looking for an excuse you will find that as well see there's a concept in psychology called cognitive cognitive reappraisal it's telling yourself a different story about what is happening joseph is exhibit a joseph could have played the victim card he also could have played god and even the score with his brothers and he didn't do either of those Why? Because he had a God's eye view at that moment. All of us have an explanatory style to us. An explanatory style is is the manner in which you habitually explain to yourself why events happen. It's those explanations. Not the experiences themselves. It's the explanations that make us or break us. So what is Joseph's explanatory style? Chapter 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but this isn't where I'm going to focus my energy. God intended it for good, the saving of many lives. I don't know if you remember at the end of 2020, there was a meme circulating about the 2020 dumpster fire. 
we were hoping that the dumpster fire would end in 2020, and 2021 would be a great new year. 2021 has been pretty much a dumpster fire too, haven't it? Now here we are in 2022 thinking maybe we'll leave it in 2021. Is it possible that 2022 is going to be a dumpster fire too? But you know, it all depends on how you look at it. Was it a dumpster fire or was it a refiner's fire? Because what comes out of a refiner's fire is always more pure, more precious, and more valuable than what went in. Malachi asked the question, who is able to endure? Who's able to stand? He will be like a blazing fire that refines metal like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. How do we fix our focus? Short answer is by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I love this moment when Peter gets out of the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, took just a tad bit of faith. Because here's the deal. If you want to walk on water, you can't do it sitting in a boat. If you want to walk on water, you're going to have to get out of the boat. And I love that story because I think that first leg over the boat is easy. It's a second leg that takes a little bit of faith. But he gets out of that boat because his focus is on Jesus. And Jesus was walking on water. He simply was doing what he was seeing. That's what following Jesus is all about. But then Peter loses his focus. He starts to focus on the wind, on the waves. I like to think he starts focusing on himself, thinking, hey guys, I'm out here walking on the water. You guys are just in the boat took his focus off of Jesus. And that's when he and that's when we will start to sink. But how can we fix our focus? Let me give you just a couple steps that might work for you. One, create or keep a gratitude, gratitude journal. One of the simplest ways to fix your focus is to write them down. Write down what you're grateful for. Your explanations are more important than your experiences. How you explain it to yourself, where your focus is, is so much more important than what you're going through. A second thing you could do is a change of, pl of pace plus a change of place equals a change in perspective. The key to spiritual growth is routine. But once routine becomes routine, you have to change the routine sometimes. Every year, I, I download a new Bible reading plan. But every year, I try to choose a different translation. Because as I read a verse in a different translation than what I normally read it in, the synapses fire a little bit different. I see the verse a little bit different. I see the story just a little bit different. We need to put things like this 
into practice. Maybe it would be a silent retreat. Maybe it's meditation. Maybe, maybe it's fasting. And a third method you could do it is to read old books. If you want new ideas, read old books. No book is older, and no book is better than the Bible. During times of crisis, we need to get a word from God. Scripture is our anchor. Scripture is our lifeline. And that brings us to number three. You have to change your story. According to Emory University study, the best predictor of a child's emotional well-being is not getting them into a great school. It's not giving them lots of hugs and kisses. It's not taking them on a pilgrimage to Disney. It's not watching Pixar films or VeggieTales. The number one indicator of the emotional well-being of a child is a child knowing their family history. All of us, every single one of us, are born into someone else's story. We all have a family of origin, some good, some not so good. And that is our Genesis story. I was born into my parents' story. My parents were born into their, my grandparents' story. For better or for worse, all of us are born into someone else's story. But here's the good news. As children of God, when we get grafted into his family, we also get grafted into his story. So scripture can become our script. Our lives can become the rest of the story. You are the only Bible that some people will ever read. The question is, is your life a good translation or not? See, here's how it works. You surrender your life to Jesus. You do that right here, right now. You give the author and perfecter of your faith complete editorial control. And he begins writing his story in and through you. In Judaism, those who followed a rabbi had four responsibilities. First, they would memorize his words. That's how we got the Gospels. The second responsibility was adopting a rabbi's unique interpretation of Scripture. Third responsibility is imitating that rabbi's life. And the fourth responsibility was discipling others the way that you had been discipled. It's that third responsibility. Imitation is the one key to habit formation. See, there's a, a form of acting called method acting. And it involves taking extreme measures to get into character. That's why someone like Christian Bale would lose 60 pounds to play an, an emaciated insomniac. Or why Jamie Foxx would glue his eyes shut to play Ray Charles. Discipleship is method acting. Taking our cues from Jesus. 
So we love like Jesus, we think like Jesus, we pray like Jesus, we treat people the way that Jesus did. Do that long enough, and you will become like Jesus, which is the ultimate goal of discipleship. If you have a simple theory of spiritual maturity, when you first encounter a verse of Scripture, it's nothing more than a theory at that point. First time you read it, it's merely a theory. And you have to test the theory by putting it into practice. And then the theory becomes ultimately your testimony. Maturity is, is testing God's word. Maturity is that theory becoming your testimony. Let me give you an example. Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Every prayer has, a, has to pass a twofold litmus test. It has to be in the will of God and for the glory of God. Anything less, anything else is a non-starter. God is not a genie in a bottle. Our wish is not his command. Prayer is not outlining our agenda to God and telling him that's what he should do. It's getting into God's word into God's presence and letting God outline his agenda to us. Remember the signet ring that Pharaoh gave to Joseph? It gave him full authority. But we have the full backing of the king and his kingdom. We have to operate within that authority. We have to exercise that authority because that is our script we're method actors the theory becomes reality and when it does it becomes our testimony and testimony is prophecy if God did it before he can do it again yesterday is history tomorrow is a mystery. We must win today. We have to win today. Don't focus on tomorrow. Don't focus on what next week, what next month, what next year will bring. Today is all we can control. So win today. Heavenly Father, thank you that Joseph was so willing to not take revenge like so many of us would, that he was willing to see things through your eyes, to see what you had planned. Help us. Help us today to focus on this day, the Lord, the day that you have given us. Help us to win the day, because that's the only way we can change our lives is today. In Jesus' name, amen.